This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Thank you so much for being with us on the program uh, here on Tactics in the Situation Room, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. So we appreciate so much you being with us this afternoon, and we hope that all is well with you. This is actually the first day that we're not going to have a coronavirus update in several months, and the reason is because I would just basically be repeating, and I feel like I have been repeating myself for really the past week, basically the same stuff over and over again. The numbers have been going in the same direction for a while now. There's really not a whole lot to update you on. I could just read the numbers to you, I guess, technically. But the thing is, you can do that yourself. And so, to as somebody who provides commentary, I felt it was a better use of our time to primarily just focus on the news that really has some kind of angle or some kind of opinion that can be brought from it. We will continue to give an update. I'm thinking probably on Thursdays we'll go ahead and do a coronavirus update at least weekly until this thing peters out even more. And there is one little tidbit of coronavirus news that I want to go ahead and give you the WHO. The WHO, not the rock band, even though I would much rather talk about them, to be perfectly honest. Remember, I, I used to be a rock DJ, so big Who fan. Uh, the WHO, a organization who I am not nearly as big a fan of, the World Health Organization, they actually came out today and said that, so far as they can tell, there is very, very little chance of anybody that is asymptomatic actually transferring the disease, which immediately was met with all kind of scorn and people on the left, especially that have a, a vested interest in this virus being much worse than it actually is, all of a sudden started questioning that and getting upset. And I'm sitting there like, who the crap is pulling for asymptomatic people being contagious? That doesn't make sense to me. This is good news for everybody. Everybody ought to be celebrating this. Everybody ought to be pretty stoked about the fact that we now know, based on the new information, that asymptomatic transfers don't really make... They're so rare, according to the newest data, that they're really insignificant. And as long as you're not symptomatic, you don't really have to worry about transferring this thing, which is really great news because that means that it's a lot. It's going to be a lot easier. People ha can feel like they're not nearly as much at risk unless they actually do start experiencing symptoms. So in a lot of ways, this is really, really fantastic news. It's something that everybody should celebrate. This really isn't a political thing. And so I really do, uh, I, it really is a wonderful thing to see that at least based on what we know right now, there's very, very little chance of transmitting the virus. And another thing that that really points to as well, and this is something that I, of course, have a unique vested interest in, what it really does is it means that when it comes to schools, there's a very, very good chance that schools are going to be opened and not inhibited because remember what was the big talking point that everybody was scared of when this whole thing started out. We were all scared that what ha would, would happen is that the reason that we justified shutting down schools, even though the mortality rate for people under the age of 18 is practically non-existent. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, last I looked at it, we're still not even in the triple digits when it comes to people under the age of 18 that have died in the United States. Not even in the triple digits yet. That's astounding. So there's almost no risk of this thing if you happen to be a young person, even if you do have some pre-existing conditions. 
And if that is the case, and we now know that asymptomatic people do not get it, and the vast majority of children that get this virus are asymptomatic, that means that there is even more reason to be able to open up the schools. There is much less risk at a child going to school, getting the virus, and bringing it home to, for example, elderly grandparents or something like that. And so this is something that mitigates the risk and makes it a lot easier for events like, I mean, my other job is working at a college. And so uh, working with, with young people, this is something that it's going to be very encouraging for colleges and schools around the state and around the country to be able to open up with very little fear that it's going to have some kind of irre irrevocable damage done to society as a whole because young people are getting it even if they themselves aren't dying. Well, the vast, vast majority of those people are asymptomatic. We don't even have to worry about them spreading it. So this is extremely good news. Now, let's go ahead and get on to the business of the day, what is going on right here in the state of Alabama. One big story that our state sort of collectively mourns for the most part is Moody Police Sergeant Stephen, Sergeant Stephen Williams, who was laid to rest today. Uh, his funeral was held today at the First Baptist Church there in Moody, and they said that there were over a 1,000 people in attendance. This is somebody that, of course, made a, a big impact on his community. He served honorably in that police department, in that sheriff's office, for 23 years as a law enforcement agent. And so... Uh, he does leave behind a, a wife and kids, and of course we, we pray for that family and, and hope that they're going to be all right, but I think that Governor Ivey put it best when she said, and you know, uh, I thought that this was a great way to encapsulate it, that the ultimate sacrifice wasn't even given by Officer Moody, but by his family. And I frankly think that's pretty appropriate. I mean, I, I've said the same thing to, to some degree, maybe not quite the, this degree, but to some degree with our military families as well, is that in a lot of ways, the people that sacrifice the most when we're talking about military families, families of police officers, that kind of thing, really in a lot of ways, it's the family that does the most sacrificing, maybe even more so than the soldier or the officer themselves, and that is because of what we see here to where they wind up worrying all the time, and then unfortunately, even though this doesn't happen for all police officer and military families, it certainly did in this occasion, where a family is now broken and without their father and without their husband because of this and because of the senseless violence. So to give you a little bit of background on what happened and the reason that uh, Officer Williams ultimately met his demise in the line of duty, they received a call at about 9.30 p.m. on June 2nd to a motel. It was the Super 8 motel there in town, and the police officers had heard that there was some kind of disturbance. They show up to the scene, and he and three other officers were immediately fired upon on arrival based on all the information that I've seen. So it doesn't appear as though this was something to where there was, the, the fact that the fire came immediately seems to suggest that it wasn't as though the police officers came, tried to stop the incident, or came and, and tried to settle things down, and then were fired upon. It seems as though the second they arrived on the scene, the shooting started, which leads us to believe that this was probably a police ambush. Unfortunately, we have seen these before, even in the state of Alabama. This is not the first incident of a police ambush happening to where people specifically make a emergency call trying to get police down there, and they do so because they want to ensnare the police that as soon as they come in, they start firing on the police officers. And so, unfortunately, that seems to be what happened here. There are two suspects in custody. 
So we do have them arrested. We believe that the only parties that were involved are the ones that are currently in custody. So it, it doesn't appear as though they're looking for other suspects, at least not right now. The attorney general of the state of Alabama, Steve Marshall, said, and I quote, I've been slow to make a public statement today because after a record-breaking year of law enforcement deaths in our state, words just seem so inadequate. You have to feel for the top cop in the state of Alabama, Steve Marshall, watching this and seeing this play out. And whether it's him or attorneys general from other states, watching this play out and knowing that, that you're the person that people are going to be looking to and you're in charge of making sure that the law enforcement in the state is handled correctly. And this rash of, of violence comes out, which, I mean obviously you didn't have any control over and it, it's not something that is happening. It's happening on your watch, but it's not happening per se because of something that you did. And so this has got to be a horrible time for attorney general Marshall, who by the way, has been through quite a bit on his own and, and his own family with uh, his wife's suicide and, and all of that playing out in the public sphere like this. You know, my heart goes right out to Steve Marshall. I do not envy that man's job at all, but Certainly, it seems as though he is, is struck by this, just like the rest of the state is as well. And when it comes to the idea that this may have been a police ambush, that there may have been people involved that were trying to specifically target police, it wasn't as though a domestic di uh, dispute or some kind of issue arose and then police were called specifically in response to it, but that a fake call was made and they were doing so specifically to ensnare police officers that arrived on the scene. We don't know that for sure. That is a possibility. And based on the most recent reporting, the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency, ALEA, is going to be working hand-in-hand -hand with the St. Clair County Sheriff's Office to try to clear this matter up and see if that actually was the case, if it was just happenstance. So they will be looking into that. But overall, I am very afraid that we are moving from a cold civil war into a hot one. Because for the last really a little over a decade at this point, America has been in sort of a, a cold civil war where it's the left against the right, rural versus urban. These clashing worldviews, uh, probably I would say the most significant out of all of the clashing worldviews that is at the core of this thing is secularism versus Christianity. And I think that really goes back to, to what is it the the origin of all of this, but regardless of the way that you see it, the way that you want to cast this particular conflict, I have seen evidence that we are in a cold civil war and have been for a while. We've been fighting it out in places like Twitter and Facebook. The country has been so incredibly divided, but it was always a war in the realm of ideas, which even though I think that it has gotten far too vitriolic, and that we have lost a lot of the things that used to unite us as a country, the, the idea of a war of ideas is not necessarily something that is foreign to America. And it's been shown time and time again that when America goes through these wars of ideas, where they go through these cold civil wars, we always emerge okay. We come out on the other side. What I'm really afraid of is that we are seeing the starting point of moving it from a cold civil war into an actual civil war. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to see states 
secede from the Union or anything like that. I, I don't see that happening, at least not anytime in the near future. There would have to be several more tripwiles, several more catalysts for us to get to that point. However, we've seen over the past week or so that people are engaging in the same kind of Marxist ideology, the us versus them, the oppressors versus the oppressed, the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat, whatever you want to call it, that there are people in pretty significant numbers, far more significant than I even gave it credit for originally, that are willing to go to actual arms to actually go out into the streets and fight. And I'm afraid that this may be one tiny sampling of what is to come. I hope that I'm wrong. I'm hoping that I, I'm just overblowing this and the fact that I, I can be a little pessimistic when it comes to these broad sweeping ideas is what's actually happening here, that it's not actually as bad as I, I see it as, but I'm worried about it. And I would ask everybody to pray about it and, and try to, to the best of your ability, be prepared for whatever may be coming our way. Now, second big local story that we have for today, which I think it, it, of course, plays into this to a degree. There have been petitions to rename several prominent buildings in Alabama's school system, whether it's high schools or buildings that are associated with our state universities. This has been something that has gained a significant amount of traction. Some of these buildings are named after pretty terrible people, after all. I mean, I don't think anybody would deny that there is, because Alabama does have a long history of, of racism and segregation, uh, slavery, so on and so forth, there are a lot of people in our history that are significant figures that also fall into that category. It's just a side effect of the, the way that our history is. It's, it's the way that it is in the state of Alabama. Not condoning it, not saying it's okay, just saying that, that is something that we realize is going to be a continuing problem as long as there are things that are named after people that were prominent in that area, or sorry, in that era where these kinds of things and these kinds of sentiments were widely acceptable by the masses. And so examples of this, at the University of Alabama, there is Morgan Hall, Bibb Graves Hall, and Knott Hall, all of which are named after either clan leaders or actual slave owners. And then on the Auburn side, you have Wallace Hall, which is, of course, named after George Wallace, who was a huge proponent of segregation, probably the nation's most infamous proponent of segregation and segregated schools, etc., etc. And you also have the same namesake for UAB's gym. They have the Wallace Gymnasium up there. And so named after the same guy, the same former governor of the state of Alabama. So because of this, you have people that are trying to put together petitions to get it changed on smaller scale, which, by the way, makes sense because it's a local issue, not a state issue. Those universities are owned by the state of Alabama, whereas in our particular case here in Montgomery, we're talking about city high schools when it comes to Montgomery. On the city level, you have people that have already started petitions to change Jefferson Davis High School and Robert E. Lee High School. So this is where we are right now. Full disclosure, I don't really know a whole lot about the people that have namesakes on Alabama's campus, and that's partly because I just didn't go to Alabama. I would imagine if they were Klan leaders and slave owners, probably not great guys. 
I think that that's a pretty safe assumption to throw out there. I don't know a whole lot about them, so I don't really feel as comfortable talking about them like that. But but full disclosure, before we get off into this subject, I don't like Wallace and never have. I've never been a George Wallace fan. I don't think that the vast majority, especially of younger Alabamians, are. And when it comes to Jefferson Davis, there are several Confederate figures that were abolitionists, that were against slavery, and that I think get a really raw deal when everybody just paints everybody that was on the Confederate side as a rabid racist and pro-slavery bigot. Jefferson Davis ain't one of them. Jefferson Davis was elected largely on a platform of white supremacy. So when I come to the table with history about people like Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee and explain how they were actually against slavery, how they actually even put their own reputations, and in in Stonewall Jackson's case, their own livelihoods at stake by going against some of the racist laws that took place in the slavery South. I'm talking about them in very different lights than Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis was a really bad dude. Didn't have a whole lot of redeeming qualities, in fact. And so, I personally don't like the guys. But I do understand, if nothing else, the argument of keeping monuments, statues, namesakes of schools, that kind of thing, if nothing else, to act as a historic reminder that, hey, there was a time in this country where people even held these morally depraved people up as examples and people that ought to be emulated. And remember in the case of Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee, that didn't come at the time that slavery was was taking place. When it came to Jefferson Davis and Lee, and again, I, I think that people wildly mischaracterize Lee and his position on slavery because they are ignorant of history, but Jefferson Davis, that one, their assumptions are pretty much right. Even though they probably don't know a lot of the actual history behind Davis, the fact that they're assuming that he was pro-slavery, well, that's absolutely true. So just because it is assumption doesn't mean they're incorrect. Uh, it just happens to be incorrect when it comes to General Lee and, and, like I said, people like Stonewall Jackson. But overall, I understand the historic argument of keeping those things up as, if nothing else, monuments to the idea that humans are fallen people that can be easily hoodwinked into very evil actions as long as society tells them that it's okay. I mean, for Pete's sake, and I've had people... Uh, either in the YouTube comment section or in comment sections on my social media that have seen me do videos like this and their comments are something to the effect of, well, what about statues of Malcolm X? And my response to that is, hey, Malcolm X has several statues actually around the United States. I don't agree with him. I think that what he was teaching was wrong, but I don't want the statues torn down. And to take it a step further, I'm darn close to a libertarian which is about as far from a socialist or a communist as you can possibly be, and I'm not even necessarily for them tearing down statues of people like Vladimir Lenin that are up in Washington State. I don't agree with him, obviously. And if you're asking me whether or not we should erect a statue to him here, well, I'm going to have to go with a hard no. However, the fact that there are people that thought that he was a good guy, that he was a hero, that felt that they needed to memorialize him... I like the fact that the statue is there to remind humanity of how easily it can go off the cliff with evil ideas. That how madness and a lack of liberty are never more than a generation away. 
And so with this, I think there is a legitimate argument to be made to keep it to preserve the history, if nothing else, as a reminder of how vulnerable humanity as a whole is to these things. So even though I don't like the people, I do like the preservation of history. And here's my question. Do we really want this to be the new standard? Do we really want the standard to be that because historic person did X, and in Jefferson Davis's case, like I said, or there's not a lot of redeeming qualities to even say, okay, well, he did some good things and a lot of really terrible things. I mean, maybe there are some people that are a little bit more up on Civil War history than I am that could explain this to me, but I, I don't know of any Jefferson Davis's redeeming qualities. Lee and, and Jackson and some other prominent Confederate figures have quite a few. To my knowledge, he doesn't have any. But that aside... Do we really want it to be the standard because people are now saying exactly the same thing with people like Thomas Jefferson right here in Birmingham? During the protest for George Floyd's death, there were people that were attacking and trying to burn Jeff or sorry, Thomas Jefferson's statue, even though Thomas Jefferson was anti-slavery. Up in Baltimore, there were actually people that defaced a monument to a regiment in Massachusetts that fought in the Civil War that was comprised entirely of black people. And so the ignorance of history is rampant, and if we are not careful, our history will be erased by mob mentality. And so what we have here is we have to tread very carefully and I I just err on the side of preserving all history, good and bad, because I want people to see the scars. I want people to see where we screwed up. I think that that's the right thing to do. But do we really want the standard to be that we've decided that this particular sin is the unforgivable sin, and because this person engaged in it, we must cast them out of history and forget them altogether? Because I'm not comfortable with that standard for a number of reasons. And I think a lot of it has to do with racism is sort of our, what's the best way to say it? The sin that we hate the most right now. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in the sense that we should hate sin. We should hate racism. That's something that a good Christian person should hate. That's something that we see addressed multiple times in the New Testament and actually quite frequently in the Old if you know where to look. However, just because this is the sin that we all pretty much agree is a society that we hate right now, and there's not a lot of disagreement upon it, what happens in the future when that sin that is hated the most changes? Let's just say, for example, and granted with the sexual revolution, I'm not sure how likely this is to happen anytime in the near future, but let's just say a generation or two removed from here, we decide that the great sin of humanity, the one that is unforgivable and we must cast everybody that engages in such sin out of history, what happens if that sin becomes adultery? Do we get rid of every monument to Martin Luther King Jr.? Do we try to erase him and his statues from history? What about other men that engaged in such actions like John F. Kennedy? Do we just cast out the baby with the bathwater? I'm not saying that we hide the sin. I'm not saying that we gloss over it. But I also do not think it is prudent and wise to take somebody that is memorializing something with good intent 
and looking at the good things that they did in their life and the contributions they had, because if we are going to make it to where whatever our special most hated sin is at the time in society is the thing that we use to erase everybody that engaged in that from history, we will eventually wind up after we've cycled through that enough with no history. That's the problem we're going to run into because history is comprised, in, uh, comprised entirely of imperfect human beings. And so because of that, I don't think that you hide the scars. I don't think that you ignore them. But getting rid of the monuments and not wanting to talk about them or, you know, we cannot hear the word turning into the Knights of Knee from Monty Python, that doesn't really do anybody any favors. And here would be my rebuttal to anybody that is saying that we need to go ahead and get rid of these names. I don't have as much stock in the University of Alabama. No offense, Bama fans, just because I don't know as much about them and also because I was never a student at the University of Alabama. I'm an Auburn alum. And so that's really just my area of expertise. It's not that I'm unconcerned about the other. It's just I can speak more intelligently on the subject that involves Auburn, my own alma mater. What about Helen Keller? Because again, if we're going to pick out one specific pet sin that we're, or pet sin's actually the opposite of this. Pet sin's the one that you don't mind committing, even though you know it's a sin. Uh, the, the most hated sin, the one that we, we must aim all of our vitriol at, Remember that Helen Keller was a avid and vocal, by the way, pun intended there, a vocal socialist who wrote extensively about how socialism should be the policy. That is a ideology that killed a hundred million people in the 20th century alone. Would we not say then that because slavery, of course bad, racism, of course bad, that because of that, that is a threshold that should remove people from having their names on buildings, then why are we allowed to have Keller Hall at Auburn? Because it seems to me the policy that killed 100 million people in one century, that should be the policy that would excoriate some, or I'm using the wrong word there, uh, should justify just erasing that person from all of history. Because if that's going to be the standard, then there needs to be nothing named after Helen Keller. I mean, for Pete's sake, she's on our freaking state quarter. There needs to be nothing at all that reminds us of Helen Keller whatsoever. By the way, along that same line of thinking, and because she ran in a lot of the same socialist circles, I want you to also remember that Helen Keller wrote for the New York Call, which was America's most popular socialist daily publication, and that she specifically wrote alongside someone who would become a close personal friend of hers. In 1915, uh, sorry, in, in the form of Margaret Sanger, who was, of course, the founder of Planned Parenthood. And if you want to talk racism, well, you would be hard-pressed to find somebody that has caused more harm to the black community than Margaret Sanger. Also remember that in 1915, because this goes along with her eugenics sort of mentality, she wrote in favor of refusing life-saving medical procedures to infants with severe mental impairments or physical deformities, stating that their lives were not worthwhile and they should become criminals. Now remember that Governor Blackface Northam, that this is essentially the policy that he was calling for. 
that if we had some kind of botched abortion and there was a child born with severe mental handicaps, that the child would be kept comfortable and then we would have a discussion as to whether or not we're going to actually administer care to this thing and try to keep it alive. He was for full-on infanticide, which, by the way, is exactly what Helen Keller was openly in favor of. At least in Northam's case, he did try to backpedal some. Helen Keller unapologetically, nah, if there's a mentally handicapped kid, just off him. And by the way, that goes along with her buddy, Margaret Sanger, who, in her own words, was in favor of things like birth control and abortion because it rooted out the human weeds. She was trying to create, again, in her own words, a race of human thoroughbreds. And people like blacks and Jews and other people that she saw as those human weeds, she was trying to weed out of society. Which, by the way, as horrible as that is, she's been incredibly successful at it. Despite the fact that black people only comprise roughly 13% of America's population, they account for about 35% of all abortions. And by the way, in certain large cities, like New York City, a black person is more likely to be aborted than born. And these were the people that Helen Keller decided to ally herself with and to be friends with and carried a lot of the same views. So if this is going to be the unforgivable sin, why is nobody crowing about Helen Keller? Why is nobody trying to remove her name from the University of North Alabama or from Auburn University's campus? And I happen to know where Keller Hall is on that campus. I walked by it virtually every single day. So uh, that being said, I don't want to straw man here. I don't want to take this argument to a level of ridiculousness. I, I know that the average person that is even in support of removing these things isn't saying that we need to remove everybody that is imperfect. So it's not my desire to straw man here. But is this the natural conclusion of what we're saying? Because if we're going to say that this one particular evil thing is the bridge too far, that we have to erase this person from any kind of monument or namesake or whatever, if that is to be the case and that is the standard that we now set, then what happens when that uh, super egregious sin that is hated by society changes in a couple of generations? And after a few iterations of that, there's really nothing left in history because history is populated entirely of flawed and fallen human beings. And this is the reason that it's important to preserve history, both the good and the bad. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll come back in just a minute on tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. Something has happened in this country recently that I have got to speak out on. In fact, I even considered, because of everything that's been going on, taking a vacation here soon and, and taking a week off from doing the shows. And based on, if nothing else, this story alone, I decided to put that off. So this is something that is incredibly important to me. The newest sign of solidarity, as it were, this is what it's being called, at least in the media, has been kneeling before black people at these protests, in, in other words, taking a knee and then begging forgiveness from them for white privilege. This is a trend that's been going on over and over again. Washington Post actually 
put up a story that listed a lot of the different incidents of this, showing a montage of clips. These things are cropping up, uh, cropping up all over the country. Here's one sampling of it that happened the other day, and I want you to take a look at it and, and be very observant of everything surrounding it and also what is being said in this clip. Now, it goes on for a little bit longer, and there are other examples of this. Like I said, Washington Post put out a, a sort of a montage of it over and over again. Sometimes it's random people, sometimes it's police officers, but this is the new trendy thing to do now is that when there is either a protest going on or a, a large group of black people, that a bunch of white people literally kneel down and bow and beg for forgiveness for, I don't know, the atrocities committed against them personally. I don't really even understand that because there's not a single person alive today that is being affected by slavery. That was well over 150 years ago. There's not even a person that has a parent that was affected by slavery at this point. So uh, there's all of that, but that's really not what I want to get into. What I'm really concerned about here is that when you have one side that is kneeling down and falling at the person's feet and asking for forgiveness and the other side standing up, that's not reconciliation. That's subjugation. And that's a whole different ball of wax. And of course, the bigger issue in my mind here is kneeling is something that is supposed to be reserved for God and God alone. Asking for forgiveness is something that's supposed to be reserved for God unless you've personally offended the other person. There is never a, a biblical example that I'm aware of of somebody asking a group of people that has been wronged for forgiveness for another group of people. There are occasions where for example, a prophet in Israel will pray that God will forgive the sins of the nation as a whole, but there's never an occasion of them bowing down and prostrating themselves to a person or an aggrieved party as a result of that. That's nowhere in Scripture. And so, this is not what equality looks like. This is not what reconciliation looks like. Now, if they come together in a prayer circle and they're all bowing down and all praying and they're praying specifically to God and not one another, all right, then we're on to something. And that might actually be a pretty good sign that reconciliation is taking place. This kind of crap is not that, though. This is prostrating yourself to a human being, which is the rankest form of idolatry that a person can involve themselves in. At least when you're bowing down to a carved statue or an idol, not condoning it, but at least when you're doing that, it is some kind of imaginary phantom that you have made up in your mind. The worst kind of idolatry, both in the scripture and today, is bowing down to a human being. And this was something that was common in the ancient world. There were 
such things as emperor worship. It was very popular all across Asian cultures. Uh, we see it actually in the scripture with people like Pharaoh who were held up as a god by their society. This is a high, high form of heresy and evil. In fact, I was actually making a joke, and unfortunately, this is why you need to be careful how you post things online, because sometimes sarcasm is hard to read. I posted a video similar to this one, which we'll actually watch in a second, where I said that this was dangerously close to blasphemy. And what I meant that was that I was, I was kind of doing my sarcastic tone where I was doing almost my Jerry Seinfeld voice in my head. This is dangerously close to blasphemy. So that kind of thing. But it is blasphemy. It is straight up blasphemy and heresy. You are engaging in idolatry by doing this. And I, I just could not stand it. Now, I've heard people make the counter-argument here with this and videos like that. It's like, well, they're actually praying to God, that yes, they are bowing down, and there's one side that's standing up, so it certainly looks like they're worshiping, which even that appearance should be avoided, but they'll say that, but they're actually playing to God, praying to God. Well, if that's the case, why do you see in that clip, if you'll go back and watch it, why do you see in that clip that all the white people are bowed down and kneeling, and all of the black people are standing up? And by the way, not only are they standing up, most of them, I think I may have saw one or two heads bowed, but the vast majority of them aren't even bowing their head. So they're not even praying, they're being prayed to. This is an incredibly evil road to go down. And it leads to the worship of human beings. Here was another example of it, where they were actually engaging in a ritualistic washing of a, a pair of black ministers feet. Now, I'm, I'm using the term minister fast and loose here. They refer to themselves as ministers after watching this. I don't think that I would refer to them as ministers, but you can see that play out here. White race, and we've just heard about one race and all of humanity. Before we stand here, Lord, confessing, repenting, Lord, for our aggression, Lord, repenting for our pride, for thinking that we are better, that we are above. Lord, we repent, we stand here, we repent for our greed, Lord, that our greed that we have. Put our necks, put our hands, our knees upon the necks of our African-American brothers and sisters, people of color, of indigenous people. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we stand in the gap and we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, I ask, Lord, as a pastor, Lord, where we as a church, a white church, have used you as a persecution towards black people. Lord, as we burn crosses, as we burn churches, God, where we're meant to be symbols of your love and of your goodness, and we've used it as a weapon against people of color. And Lord, we repent, Lord, on behalf of all of our people, Lord, as, a, as an English person, God, here in America, Lord, I repent on behalf of the colonialism, Lord, and, and the oppression, God, I repent. Yes, Lord. Lord, it's, it's also my honor and privilege to 
kneel here before my brother and sister and, and go low and, and repent. Now, again, my biggest issue with this is that they're not worshiping God. They are all kneeling down and worshiping the black people at the epicenter of this prayer circle thing that's going on here, and they're washing their feet. Now, to be clear, the feet washing thing, it's weird and cringy, and I don't really understand why they're doing it. Theologically, there's nothing inherently wrong with that because it's not necessarily a form of worship. There are people that worshiped at Jesus' feet as they were washing him, but that's not necessarily the thing that really sticks in my craw. I think it's weird and strange, and it rips the washing of the apostles' feet completely out of historic context. But I had an issue with ritualistic foot washing before it was ever tied to anything connected with race. That, that's not really the problem here. My biggest problem is the content of the prayer, what's being said, and by the way, again, to the people that are trying to make the argument, well, they're not, they're not trying to pray to the black people, they're trying to pray to God. Oh, really? Well, then why is it in that video, and you just saw it, that the two people doing the foot washing, they started all of a sudden entering into a prayer, and then you see the person that's a volunteer there actually go and find police officers, bring them to the front, and have them move, and actually puts her hand down on the police officer's back and basically... I know that, that, you know, they're not forcing them down, but like motions them to kneel down in front of them. And then when more people come up to gather, they're all facing the black people up at the front. Did you notice that? Because if it's just about prayer, can't you pray where you are? Couldn't you pray wherever you were standing? No, they specifically bring them up and have them kneel in front of the black people so that they can be seen kneeling before them. This is one of the rankest, most evil forms of idolatry I have ever seen. It's just detestable. And the worst people there are the ministers. At least the, the people that claim to be ministers. Again, I'm, I'm being real fast and loose with the term. The two people that are having their feet washed, according to the story that I read, they're suppo both supposed to be ministers, and then the two people doing the, the actual foot washing are supposed to be ministers as well. They're the worst ones because they're supposed to know better. Remember that I say this as somebody that is a minister of the gospel. We're held to a higher standard. I mean, it would be terrible for anybody that has any knowledge of Scripture, anybody that, that has any kind of sense on that, should be able to look around and go like, uh, yeah, this isn't right. This is absolutely not right. But what's worse are the ministers that are up there at the front that are helping lead the mass, lead the mob mentality into thinking that this is okay. And as the people basically on the receiving end of this, the second somebody did anything anywhere remotely resembling what just happened there and tried to do that to me, I'd say, uh, no, no, no you, you don't worship me. You do not worship me. That, that is heresy. That is leading somebody down a false path. I just, I cannot fathom how anybody, and race, color, doesn't matter, anybody that has any knowledge of Scripture allowing this to go on. And honestly, if you look at what they're saying in the prayer, it genuinely sounds like a Gregory Post prayer. Like the, the goofy character that I play that's like a, a socialist hippie preacher. 
it sounds like something he would have said. He uses all the right buzzwords. Uh, we're asking for forgiveness from colonialism and all white people are guilty of this. And we apologize for our greed. And the real kicker that I, I love in here is talking about asking forgiveness from the white church. Ain't no such thing as a white church. There's no such thing as a white church. There's no such thing as a black church. There is the church, and that's it, period, end of discussion. There is no such thing as a white church. We are not racially divvied up in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Paul is very emphatic about this, that when it comes to the kingdom of God, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. There's no such thing as a white church. And so... The theology is way off, not just in the optics of the event, but in the actual content that is going on here. And another thing, too, asking for forgiveness from all white people, asking for forgiveness from the Caucasian race, as he put it, that is racist because you're assuming that all white people have engaged in unfair behavior and racism. That guy doesn't represent me. That guy doesn't represent me at all. Now, maybe there have been times in my past where I did things that I shouldn't have in regards to race. I'm an imperfect person. I've treated people of different races incorrectly, I'm sure, just like I have everybody else. But the idea that the entirety of the white race is somehow guilty of racism and he has to go before God to ask for forgiveness for all Caucasian people, for all crimes that have been committed against black people, that's just absurd. Not every white person is racist. And the fact that they assume this, and the fact that he uses every single politically correct buzzword in the uh, social justice warrior lexicon, pretty much gives you a pretty strong indication that this guy is much more about political correctness than he is about actually obeying the scripture. Um, so on that, I, I guess the the one little bit of grace that I can extend here, and I think we should extend as much as possible because that's the, the right way to handle this, is what I will say about this is I, I do think that there is at least a monicum of good intent. And that's good. A lot of people never get to good intent. And so that that is a point in their favor. There is some good intention here that they really are wanting to reconcile. They really are wanting there to be a, what's the best way to say this? They're wanting to engage in something that helps the healing process, which is good and I think necessary. So there is good intention here. But good intention does not in and of itself make everything else okay. In fact, the Bible is littered with stories of people that had good intentions that did what, according to Proverbs, for example, uh, there are things that man thinks are right in his heart, but the end is, is death. There is probably a lot of good intention here, but no amount of good intention detracts from the fact that they are engaging in rank idolatry. And so, I, I don't know how else to... To, to phrase it there, I mean, look at how often Israel, for example, they wanted peace. They wanted reconciliation. They wanted to be able to live amongst their neighbors in peace. How often did Israel, probably out of a desire to have that, engage in a lot of the same practices that the pagans surrounding them engaged in? 
that they started trying to adopt things like, you know, for example, in the period of the judges with Samson. It was a good thing that they wanted to live in peace with their neighbors. That is a good instinct. But if you're sacrificing truth and disobeying God's word in order to do so, that's not going to lead anywhere good. By the way, thankfully, um, well, I tell you what, we'll go ahead and go to this clip first, unfortunately. Now, I want you to keep in mind, and I want to be very clear about this beforehand. This video is not real. The person that is asking them this, that is saying that he's a, a, a person that represents Black Lives Matter, he is not. He is an internet comedian doing this as a parody. So I don't want to spread false information. Keep that in mind. That this is a fake video. But the people in the video don't know that at the time. The people in the video think that this guy really does work for Black Lives Matter and comply. And here's an example of that. Excuse me. Hey, excuse me. I work for Black Lives Matter. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I work for Black Lives Matter. I'm sorry that I scared you. But since I work for that company, my CEO has told me to come out today and to bring you on your knees because you have white privilege. So if they see that a white person is getting on their knees, that shows solidarity for the situation. The situation. And could you just please apologize for, you know, for your white privilege? Just apologize? I am. I'm trying to think it's it's big it's so it's large in this country you know with this country we have that president donald duck that clown in office you know he's brought a lot of bigotry and you're not a part of it right no no and so you know just okay you have a great day now that is obviously not real it's satire now i'm not I guess I am patting myself on the back a little bit. My spidey senses were immediately tingling when I saw that because, you know, a lot of people didn't realize it was fake at the start. And the reason that people didn't realize it was satire is because this is not something that's wildly outside the realm of possibility. The reason that the Babylon Bee's job is getting harder is it's really hard to parody when the real world, the truth is becoming stranger than fiction. And it's harder to parody the left because you can't move further left than they are to sort of give some kind of satire to them. And, you know, the Babylon Bee does a great job at, at trying to do that, and they still wind up being pretty darn funny. But when it comes to this, the reason that this parody, because obviously this guy's lying, he's not really part of Black Lives Matter, the reason that it works is because it's believable. The reason that it works is because there have been people that have asked essentially the same thing, and when it comes to the kneeling part, that's kind of new because that's a new phenomenon. But walking around demanding that people prove that they're not racist by apologizing for their white privilege, that's a thing. And what's crazier is, it's also a proof of concept. Again, the, the person there, the lady, and th this video goes on for two hours. It's, it's two hours of him doing this. So there's many, many people that, that do the same thing. What this shows is it's a proof of concept that there are people that are willing to go on their knees and beg for forgiveness and essentially worship at the idol of racism, which, by the way, is one of the left's absolute favorite idols. The idol of race has become something to them that is just as instrumental to their platform or to their worldview and to their partheon of gods as abortion has. And race is actually a part of that one as well. There is some interconnection there. So this is something that you're saying. So, yeah, it's 
the video itself is fake, but it's a proof of concept. It shows that there are people that are willing to go along with this, as we've just seen from our previous clips. Luckily, though, not everybody has bought into the madness. Luckily, though, there are a few men left, like God says to Elijah, that have not, ba- have not bended the knee to Baal. There are some people that are refusing to go along with this, and the best example of this so far is this state trooper out of the state of Georgia that in in just 20 seconds very succinctly explains himself and needs no more explanation than that. I wasn't took, I'm supposed to be out of town this weekend with my wife. I took off today, this weekend, and I'm out here to make sure y'all say, don't go there with respect. Okay, thank you. I have much respect, but I only kneel for one person. And that's God. God, God. Now, was there anything about that that was unreasonable? Was there anything about that that was theologically unsound? No. And even when he's talking to the people, now granted, there's not really, a, or at least if there is, I couldn't find it, a full clip that gives the discussion that led up to that and the, the what happened afterward. But he's saying, look, it's not a sign of disrespect. I have nothing against you people. In fact, I took off specifically. Even though I was supposed to be away for the weekend with my wife, I took off because I wanted to make sure that everybody here was safe. I'm a servant to my community, but I don't kneel before anybody that isn't God. This is a guy that has his head screwed on right. And it doesn't become contentious. There's no vitriol there. He's just saying, look, that's not something that I do. You don't have to commit blasphemy to build bridges with people. The average, I mean, there may be some people that are going to be outraged at it, but those are people that you're not going to appease no matter what you do anyway. Even if you do actually kneel to them, they're still not going to be satisfied. So the average normal person, the average well-intended person, could hear an explanation like that and be like, all right, believe me, if they're a God-fearing person and they have even... A, a grain of rice worth knowledge of the scripture, they're going to understand your position on that one. And so I commend the officer here that very succinctly explains himself and does so in a way that says, hey, look, it's, it's nothing against y'all. You know, wish you the best. I'm actually out here specifically trying to help y'all out, but I'm not kneeling. That's not something I'm doing. That's something that is reserved specifically for God, and I don't kneel for anybody that isn't him. That's the correct biblical standard to have. So remember in all of this, because this is a guy that reminds me of other prominent people in the scripture that even though they had the mob against them, they had the crowd against them, everybody else was kneeling and everybody else was bowing. He said, nope, not going to do it. I will not bend the knee to the idol of race or In the case of these other people, like let's look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king commanded, and everybody else did it. You have to bow down to the golden idol which I have commanded. And and Shadrach, Meshach, speaking too fast. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego look at him and are like, "Uh, yeah, we ain't doing that. Even if you throw us into the fire, even if it costs us our lives and God doesn't rescue us, we will not bow to your gods. End of discussion. When it comes to Daniel, Daniel refused to restrain his prayer to God in order to pray to the king and ask petition of him. He says, no, that is putting man in the place of God. I'm not doing it. I'm praying to God the way that I always did. That was Daniel's stance. When it came to Mordecai, and by the way, I just a weird happenstance, but I just so happened to be reading through the book of Esther. That's just the time of year because I'm going through a yearly Bible plan. 
just this morning, I was reading the book of Esther where Mordecai, her cousin, says, nope, not going to bow to Haman. Just not going to do it. I bow to God and God alone. And the reason that there is that whole kerfuffle between Haman and the Jews and, and Haman tries to get the Jews killed is because Mordecai refused to bow to him. Even though it put his entire race at risk, because this was the number two guy in the country and Mordecai had to know that that was at least a possibility that there would be blowback, didn't matter. Mordecai said, I will not bow the knee. I won't do it. And even when it comes to a celestial being like an angel in Revelation, when one appears before John and John falls down at his feet, it says that he fell down and worshipped him. The angel says, uh, get up. You don't bow to me. You don't worship me. Worship God alone. I'm a servant, just like you. You don't even bow to an angel. Certainly not going to bow to another human being. That is simply not something that is biblically sound. And by the way, the reason that I bring all this up, because I don't want to be a person that just throws it out and says, well, that's wrong. Like I said, there is some good intention here. They are wanting to come to a place of healing and reconciliation, and I acknowledge that. I think that the good intention doesn't override the fact that what they're doing is wildly sinful. But there is a right way to do that, and so I don't want to just point out the problem. I want to point out the solution. So even though this clip is about a week old, there is a right way to do this. There is a right way to come together. And I can think of no better example than the sheriff of Flint, Michigan, Chris Swanson, who did this a week ago, uh, where he doesn't, he doesn't bow, he doesn't prostrate himself, he doesn't worship anybody. He just says, hey, let's walk together. Let's walk down the road as equals. The only reason we're here is to make sure that you got a voice. That's it. There we go. Don't think for a second. Don't think for a second that he represents who these cops are from all over the county and around this nation. We want to be with y'all for real. So I took my helmet off and laid the batons down. I want to make this a parade, not a protest. You got little ones here, you got dogs, so what's up? So listen, I'm just telling you, these cops love you. That cop over there hugs people, so you tell us what you need to do. That's how you handle it. That's all that was needed there. Officer Swanson, he looked out, he saw that the crowd was peaceful, that they meant him no harm, that there was an abundance of goodwill there. And so he said, you know what, we don't need the riot gear. Take off the helmet, drop the batons, let's walk with these people. That's the way you handle that. You find the people of good intent. You find the people that mean you no harm, that, that don't mean any ill towards you, and even though I'm sure that politically there was an abundance of different opinions in there or how it should be handled, didn't matter. He saw an opportunity to find some reconciliation, and he went for it. That's the correct response. I'll stand with you, I'll walk with you, I will not bow to you. That is something that is reserved for God and God alone. I don't mind standing with you. Don't mind walking with you. I will stand with any man when he is right. That was the standard that Abraham Lincoln gave. But he still didn't bow to anybody that was not God. 
And so there is a correct way to handle this, and that's the perfect model. That is the way that you handle this. Peace does not have to cost you your soul. Because sometimes peace does have a cost. Sometimes peace does require you to do something that you wouldn't normally do, like Sheriff Swanson just laid out. But you don't have to throw away your theology, you don't have to throw away your good sense and reason in order to do it. There is a correct way to handle a situation like that. And by the way, another person that I want to give kudos to, and, you know, not necessarily a political phenom or anything, but somebody that I really like, and I think that he's trying to do the right thing, uh, Terry Crews, oddly enough, a, a weird place to go to, an actor for this, but he made a phenomenal point the other day that basically alluded to exactly this, that we don't have to have people subjugate themselves or prostrate themselves to us in order for there to be peace and healing, and reconciliation. So, this is Terry Crews' tweet from the other day, where he basically lays this out. So if we can pull it up, there we go. Defeating white supremacy without white people creates black supremacy. Equality is truth. Like it or not, we are all in this together. Amen, brother. That's the problem. Because if you have one group that must be superior to the next, that's not going in the right direction. This is the issue that I have with a, a lot of the reparation crowd or whatever. Their solution is essentially group X hurt group Y in the past, which is legitimate. Therefore, group Y should hurt group X in the present. Well, no, that doesn't fix the problem. That would be like if you have two kids and one punches the other, and your solution is to let the one that got punched punch the other brother. That's not the solution. That's not going to lead to reconciliation. That's going to lead to more resentment. And so what happens here is Terry Crews is basically using the old adage of two wrongs don't make a right. He's saying, yeah, let's be equal. Let's come together as brothers, but let's not go to the place to where we make one group superior to the other because then that's just the same problem in a different direction. And by the way, there were an awful lot of people, the Twitter mob quickly descended upon Terry Crews, which unfortunately is the way that it is. I was actually talking to a buddy literally just in the break right before we, we did this segment. And I was uh, talking about this story and mentioned that Twitter is like the worst of humanity. Twitter is like a, a giant showroom for the worst that humanity has to offer. And uh, the analogy that I, I ran with with him was it's basically the Moss Eisley Cantina of America. Twitter is just where all the, the scum and villainy, the or what is it, the, the evil hive of scum and villainy, that's where they all congregate. And there's a lot of truth to that. And I say that remembering that, hey, I'm on Twitter and you should follow me, but at the same time, you have to realize that like Twitter is not a good representation of the general public. And so uh, the fact that Terry Crews got attacked, I think that the average person would have seen that what he's saying is 100% rational and reasonable, and in a normal crowd of average people that's not Twitter, he probably would have gotten a lot of applause instead of a lot of blowback, but of course he got a lot of blowback because he was on Twitter. And this was his response to one of the critics that came up against him where he kind of clarifies his position on this. So you'll see there he says, uh, I was not saying black supremacy exists because it doesn't. 
I am saying that if both black and whites don't continue to work together, bad attitudes and resentments can create dangerous self-righteousness. That's all. Why is Terry Crews right on that? What is the difference in him and a lot of the people, celebrities, political pundits, so on and so forth, on Twitter that don't hold that worldview, that think that basically we do have to have Group Y become superior to Group X as payback for what happened to Group Y in the past. Because Terry Crews has a biblical worldview. Now, I'm not saying that he's perfect or we should hold him up as the great, because I think Terry Crews even would not want us to do that. But I'm saying on this one issue, that's the difference. Most of the people that are angry with him for saying it, that are arguing against him, have a wholly secular worldview. And the world standard is when somebody knocks out your tooth, you knock out every tooth in their mouth. That's their standard. You punch them back twice as hard as they punched you. The biblical standard understands that human beings are rotten pretty much out of the gate that all are sinful, that none are righteous, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, what justice means is a level of forgiveness and reconciliation, not payback, not vengeance. That's the difference here. The biblical worldview understands that if the solution to an aggrieved party is that aggrieved party now getting to do whatever they want to the party that wronged them, that that's not going to come, that's not going to lead anywhere good. That's going to lead to more resentment and more division. And so Terry Crews is just pointing out what is obvious to any of us that do have that biblical worldview, that essentially what we need to do is figure out a way to come together as equals as opposed to subjugating people for a while to balance the scales or whatever kind of crazy ideas that they're trying to come up with here. Because anything other than equality is an error. And error, or in the biblical sense, sin, begets more sin. Error begets more error. You don't allow a person to sin against the other person as a correction you ask for forgiveness and try not to repeat that, that thing that happened. That's what we need to do moving forward. I will stand or walk with anybody when he is right. But I will never kneel. Ever. For anyone that isn't God. That's the biblically correct stance to take on this. So let's go ahead and go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. Today's Daily Dose of Stupid is one that, uh, after we've had a very intense show, it doesn't break my heart as much as it probably would if we were dealing with a lot of frivolous stuff, but uh, I gotta say, it is a blow because I grew up with this. It's Looney Tunes. Now, what has happened recently with Looney Tunes is that, sadly... They have taken away the guns from Elmer Fudd and Yosemite Sam. So all of the new Looney Tunes that are coming out now, because they've, tr- they've tried to go back to the old style of animation, the, the old Looney Tune format, as it were, and revised it in a new way. 
and uh, Elmer Fudd and Yosemite Sam characters that are very often depicted as having guns now no longer will feature guns. So here's a small snippet of what the newest Looney Tunes are going to look like. All right, so you get the idea there, and it goes on for a few more minutes, but uh, you saw there at the very beginning that Elmer Fudd is using a scythe, not a shotgun, which uh, raises a number of questions, because first of all, even though a shotgun is obviously a much deadlier weapon and it has more range, a scythe is a far more intimidating <laughs> weapon. Like, uh, If I face a dude with a shotgun, I'm probably scared because he's got a shotgun, I face a dude with a scythe, I'm like, what is this guy's problem? Is this some kind of nut that thinks he's the Grim Reaper? Like, scythe was an odd choice of weaponry. <laughs> but that's what they went with. And the irony in all of this is, they immediately follow it up with bugs using a whole bunch of dynamite. And I don't really get the difference because... They're both weapons that use gunpowder. Granted, dynamite's not a projectile, but I don't understand why one is is wrong to show kids and the other is okay. If, if you want to be one of those parents that thinks that any kind of violent showing to a kid is wrong, okay, I may not agree with your argument, but at least you're consistent on that if you don't want dynamite or TNT or, you know, the, the big rock crushing the coyote when he's chasing the roadrunner. I don't agree, but I get your stance. With this, it's just like we're only going to remove the gun so that we can be politically correct, but we're going to keep the dynamite in? That I don't understand that at all. And, and first of all, and this was my immediate reaction, the bit sucks regardless of whether there's a gun or not. Like if Elmer Fudd were chasing him with a gun, that bit would still not be good. So I, that cartoon has bigger problems than the fact that, that that's the case. It's just not funny. But what they have been trying to do over at Warner Brothers is basically return to the glory days. And you can see from that clip, that's very clearly what they're trying to do. Because back in the day, of course, Looney Tunes wildly popular. It was really, really funny. When you're looking back at like the Mel Blanc era, where you're seeing a lot of the classic cartoons that we all grew up with. And so they try to go back to the glory days and, and try to go back to that hand-drawn animation style, even though I'm sure it's not hand-drawn. I'm sure that there's computers in it. Part of that is because, and I know that we're getting off a little into the details here, but hey, cartoons is one of my wheelhouses, and so this is an area where I can really show off some of my expertise. When it comes down to the cartoon, for a very, very long time, they had gone to trying to do something new and modern and hip, and, and let's even bring in computer animation and I don't know if you saw the Looney Tunes show, which they came out with a few years ago. They basically tried to make it into Seinfeld, which was really, really odd. It's, it's like basically a sitcom where Bugs and Daffy live together. Very, very strange. And wound up completely missing the mark. Nobody liked it for obvious reasons. And so now they're trying to go back to, quote unquote, the good old days. To where they can actually get back to their, their former popularity. But this is not going to cut it. 
and I'm going to show you a perfect example of why. With arguably the most politically incorrect Looney Tune cartoon that has ever come out. Take a watch. Well, shut my mouth and call me compound if it ain't the little old self. Eyes come in, eyes come in, but my head is bending. I'm up north! <laughs> Gotta burn my boots. They touched Yankee soil. <laughs> you get the idea there. But the reason that's so funny and ridiculous is that Yosemite Sam is a confederate. I don't know, it kind of makes sense. He's he's goofy and wild and animated. And by the way, one thing did you notice in there that they're making fun of both sides? The reason that Bugs wants to go into the South by crossing the Mason-Dixon line, literally at the line, you can see it's like a, a paradise with riverboats and, and lush foliage and everything. And on the, the north side, barren wasteland. <laughs> so they're making fun of the north, and they're also making fun of the south. Why? Because it's funny. That's the thing that so many of these cartoons and comedy shows have lost in the PC era. That back in the day, they just did what was funny. They didn't care about being politically correct. They didn't care whose toes they stomped on. They wanted it to be funny, and that's why it was funny. The reason that a lot of the modern shows fall short is because priority number one is making some kind of ridiculous political statement or not offending anyone. Well, it's really hard to be funny when that's your number one priority. And so it really is a shame... But when you're constantly worried about political correctness and stepping on eggshells and making sure you check all the right political boxes, when that becomes priority number one, funny just kind of goes out the window and maybe you'll still occasionally be funny every now and then, but it's not going to be like it was. So in other words, Looney Tunes' effort to go back to the glory days, as it were, they aren't going to work if they're going to pigeonhole themselves like this. I mean, yeah, the old Looney Tunes was goofy and ridiculous and it put people in a lot of situations that didn't make sense. They didn't care. They didn't explain it. There's no reason they're explaining that Yosemite Sam all of a sudden is a Confederate soldier that hasn't heard the war ended. They just put him in the situation and let it play out because it's funny. That's what's missing from this modern version of it. And the whole idea that they're going to show sides and dynamite but not guns that's such a weird standard to have. I don't understand why that's the, the breaking point. You may notice that Yosemite Sam tends to use a revolver, and uh, Elmer Fudd uses a break action, usually double barrel, although I've seen single barrel as well, usually a double barrel shotgun. Not only are those not automatic weapons, they're not even semi-automatic weapons. Nobody's even talking about banning those. Yet they do use dynamite, which is already banned because of how dangerous it is. None of it makes any sense. And the reason it doesn't make any sense is because their standard has become political correctness and feelings, not actually trying to be funny and doing whatever makes the bit work. So, ultimately, here, here's my prediction. I'll, I'll end with this. 
people are still going to like the reruns better. They're still going to be watching the reruns on Boomerang as opposed to watching the new ones because the new ones have given themselves this ridiculous handicap to where it's going to be much harder for them to be as funny as the old ones were. Could be wrong. That's my prediction. Maybe they wind up being really funny despite their political correctness, but I rather doubt it. Let's go to the Chaplain's Report. In 1775... The Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Now, today's Chaplain's Report, again, because of what's going on in the country, I've decided to kind of temporarily suspend our series on Samuel, and and it does go back to what we were talking about sort of in the middle of our show, where we were talking about the idea of, of kneeling down before people and asking forgiveness. Of course, only God can grant forgiveness, but I want to focus on the kneeling here just for a second. Let's go ahead and look at a passage that actually does address something right along these lines in Colossians chapter 2 verses 18 through 19. And Paul writes there, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Now, despite that being a pretty short passage of Scripture, wow, there is a wealth to unpack in that short little passage. So, one thing that I wanted to draw your attention to is that being defrauded from the prize. Now, what is it talking about there? Of course, in the context, what he's talking about is people that are being led away from salvation, led away from their inheritance in the church as Christians by doing what? Self-abasement. In other words, prostration, humiliation, humiliating themselves in front of something that they ought not be humiliated in front of, in other words, anything other than God. And the second part of that that he brings up is angel worship, which confirms what we were saying just a second ago, that the self-abasement that he's talking about is not humiliation or prostration in front of God, even though I think it actually could include that, and I'll get to that in a second but specifically bowing down to anything that isn't God, even an angel, even if it's a celestial being, an actual messenger from God coming to deliver a message, you never prostrate yourself to him. You are a worshiper and a servant of God, not angels, not any created being deserves worship. That is the biblical standard. It has been that way since the Old Testament, and it continues on in the New. So, This idea that self-abasement before somebody or worshiping of something other than God is okay is, is biblically completely out of the question. But the reason, that's what I really want to dig into, the reason behind that is, I would say at the very least, twofold. There's probably actually more reasons for it than the ones I'm thinking of. But what it does is it projects a fake holiness. Because... A fake holiness can be something that is done before other people or angels, like Paul is alluding to here, but it could also happen before God. Remember that this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. 
that Jesus actually specifically pointed out that the Pharisees loved to go out into the square and make a big show of what they were going to do, bowing down before the earth. They had these big phylacteries, uh, phylacteries, I think is the way to say that, you know, trying to speak Hebrew here, uh, in front of their face that had little pieces of scripture on it, and they would have these giant ones so everyone could see it from afar off, and they would wear these long, big robes that had scripture on them, and then they would go out into the village square and they would prostrate themselves, and, and they were doing it in front of God. They weren't worshiping a person or an idol. They were doing it before God, but the fact that they were doing it in order to gain the respect and to gain the worship of other men is what put them in the wrong. They were doing it because they loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God. And that's why Jesus actually explained to them and told them that, look, you're not supposed to be doing this for the praise of men. It's supposed to be something that is done specifically for God, and you're failing on that. And so we have to have the same standard here. This idea that we are projecting a fake holiness to other people to try to gain their favor, isn't that exactly what is going on here with the protest? They were wanting to gain the favor of men, therefore we are prostrating ourselves and worshiping in front of something that isn't God? Gang, that's heresy. That's something that the Bible is vehemently against. And yet there are people that are, are probably well-intended Christians that are getting caught up in this because of the, that's what the herd is doing. Let's go ahead and, and do as the Romans do. That's not the biblical standard. And furthermore, and I think that this might be an even bigger thing, it plays to this idea that we often talk about virtue signaling. It's something that is specifically done in order to curry the favor of other people. You're trying to announce to everybody else, hey, look, I'm virtuous. It's what a lot of this stuff with people doing the, uh, what was it, the, the whole blackout thing or... Uh, these different companies trying to take a stance on that, uh, going off the air for... Uh, that's what virtue signaling is. It's trying to signal to everybody else, hey, look at me, I'm a virtuous person. It's not the right thing to do. Now, if you are a virtuous person, people are going to pick up on that, but you shouldn't make these big showy proclamations of it to try to convince people how virtuous you are. That's something that the Bible never condones. And I want you to notice that what Paul says here in the, the afterward, he says that it is the result of, because he says inflating without cause, of a fleshly mind. And that's interesting, because he's saying this idea of, uh, of self-abasement uh, and this idea of worshiping angels and trying to curry the favor of others to appear more righteous than you actually are, it comes from a fleshly mind. That is a person that is focused on the world, not on God, not on spiritual matters. And that's one of the primary reasons that it's wrong. Because it puts the focus on what is going to happen here on earth as a result of your religion, as you're practicing these things. It takes the emphasis off of God and what good it does for the kingdom. That's part of the reason that it's wrong. And you'll notice also that he says the result of that is thinking that doesn't hold to the head. What does that mean, doesn't hold to the head? He's talking about the head of the church. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's saying being in this fleshly mindset where you're constantly worried about gaining the approval of other human beings, that puts you against the head. That puts you against Christ. Because a person that is spiritually minded is focused on Jesus. 
He's focused on pleasing him. He's focused on doing what is right for the kingdom, not what is going to gain him the favor of those surrounding him. And the results of this, you'll notice, are going to be division, not unity. Why? Because Paul says in the latter part of verse 19 that the body is being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments and grows with the growth which is from God. See, the uniting of the church, what holds us together, is God, not the praise of men. Not that we think that our our buddies and our fellow Christians are swell people that we would love to hang out with. Okay, that's a good thing. It's not what holds us together. God does that. What holds us together is true humility, true self-abasement. And by that I mean the humbling of the Spirit and the kneeling of ourselves and our hearts towards God. Not seeking out the gain and the admonition of other people, because here's the thing, if that's what we become about, that's going to cause division. Why? Because there's only so much admiration from human beings to go around, and then we're going to be competing with one another to see who can look the most pious and who can gain the most praise from human beings. That puts us in the wrong mindset, and all that's going to do is drive us apart from our brothers. And that's going to be true whether our brothers are the same race as us or different race or whatever. It's going to cause disunity in the church. So if we want there to be unity, if we want to be truly unified, if we want to find that place of reconciliation, we've got to throw all of this out. The only thing that can unite us is the fact that we are all image bearers of the unmoved mover, the one true God that is the father of all, and that we all have a participation in and an inheritance from Jesus Christ to be forgiven of our sins, all of which we need, all of which every single one of us have fallen short of his glory and are in need of redemption. You see, that concept brings us a lot closer together. Because then we realize, and I'm just like everybody else, I've got flaws, I've got problems, I am not worthy to be in God's presence, and yet because of his son and because of the redemption he offers, I am. That's a unifying quality. Not what's been going on here. Not falling down at the feet of people and begging them to to see you as fit and to unify us. That doesn't work. The only thing that can unify men is God. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.